Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, bonus episode number five, 250 popes, 1800 years. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So, we've come a long way since the last of these recap episodes, which was at 200 popes. And we were at 200 popes, the Great Western Schism before the, between the Avignon Pope and the Roman Pope, and eventually between them and the Pisan Pope had just started. There was no such thing as Protestantism. The Pope still had a lot of sway in international affairs. And we've had, since then, the Renaissance Papacy, the Reformation, the Council of Trent, the creation of and suppression of and reestablishment of the Jesuits and the French Revolution. So how to recap everything that's happened over the last 50 episodes? I think I'm going to run through the story in broad brushstrokes as a reminder first, and then I just want to talk about a couple important themes and then finally look ahead to the last 14 episodes of this series. So first, a brief recap. We left off with the start of the Great Western Schism between the Avignon Papacy and the Roman Papacy. The problem was a huge scandal for Christendom as the entire Catholic world was split between the two popes. And then when the Pisan claimant came forward in the mix between Pisa and Avignon and Rome, everyone was divided. And everyone recognized it was a total scandal. Everyone wanted to try and solve it, but no one could figure out how. And finally, into this mix came the Holy Roman Emperor, who convinced most of the bishops to attend a council at Constance in Germany. And then after some work, got most of the anti-popes to resign, and Pope Gregory XII agreed to resign and recognize the council as well paving the way for the election of Pope Martin V and the end of the Western Schism. And we had a couple of popes after that which dealt with the fallout from the Council of Constance and the new idea of conciliarism, which put the council ahead of the pope in the government of the church and demanded regular councils meet. And that led to another anti-pope and a rogue ecumenical council at Basel. But that eventually got transferred to Florence, which led to the reconciliation for the last time between the Orthodox and the Catholics, which wouldn't last too long, but it was a big step in in history, and then eventually settled down completely. And the anti-pope's secretary eventually became Pope Pius II. So all that kind of gradually simmered out. Now, looking back, Pope Pius II is kind of an important figure in the history of the papacy as a kind of turning point. Nicholas V, two popes before him, is usually described as kind of the first real Renaissance pope. But Pius II fits that bill even more to the T. He was a lover of classical learning. He received a classical education. He produced a voluminous biography, which is one of the first few firsthand accounts of a pope's life that we had. And he started the trend of Renaissance popes being promoters of the arts and letters. But at the same time, you see the corruption creeping into the papacy, which went hand in hand with the Renaissance popes. There was a tremendous amount of nepotism, a lack of moral behavior by the popes and cardinals, and a scandalous amount of wealth flowing through the pope's hands. We see from this point on that most of the popes are from prominent Italian families, and their election is seen as promoting the family's interest. The goal is less the good of the universal church and more the promotion of the family itself, setting up independent power bases and improving and and promoting family members for the government of Italy. So at this time, we have one of the most scandalous periods in the history of the papacy since the dark ages of the 10th century. And we have the three worst offending families break into papal power over this time. The infamous Borgia popes, with particular emphasis on the depravity of Pope Alexander VI. The Della Rovere's, with Julius II being this grandiose soldier pope. And then the pleasure-loving Medici popes. And with that mention of the Medicis and Pope Leo X, who is one of the first Medici popes and was named a cardinal when he was like 13 years old, 
we have to turn our attention to the backlash against the corruption found in Rome and the Protestant Reformation. Pope Leo X did little to address the concerns made by the Protestant Reformation, and so did many of his successors. It wasn't really until Pope Paul III, who himself was a Renaissance prince, but had a real conversion of heart while a cardinal, that a true attempt at reform was made in the calling of the Council of Trent. While Pope Paul III practiced nepotism, at the same time he called to Rome men of real holiness and ability to be cardinals, and he started the process of truly reforming the papacy. After the Council of Trent, the men chosen to be popes were usually, on the whole, holy, attentive, and competent. Instead of being Renaissance princes, they usually got degrees in canon law and worked their way up through the papal bureaucracy. Now, nepotism was still an issue as well, and it was that case for well into the latter half of these 50 popes, but was beginning to see more and more as scandalous and was gradually dying out. The reform of the church was undertaken at this time really by dedicated people influencing and supporting other dedicated reformers. Most of the reforming popes owe their rise due to being supported by other reforming individuals. Paul III called another a number of reformers to Rome to help with this process, and they themselves brought in other men of ability and influence who were able to continue the reformation. Now, another major figure we saw during this process was the influential St. Philip Neri, whose circle in Rome promoted genuine holiness and produced a good number of popes and cardinals. In fact, it usually wasn't the strictest, most zealous popes that produced the best results reform-wise. Usually they provoked a backlash, like Paul IV and Blessed Innocent XI. But overall, culture was changed by normal men trying to live out their promises and care for the church. Now, towards the end of these last 50 years, we start to see a new conflict between the church and secular rulers. The church has come a long way since the papacy of Pope Innocent III, which was episode 174, where the Pope was basically the ruler of Europe in influence and stature. Secular rulers influenced by absolutist principles wanted to take more and more power and influence away from the church because they saw it as undercutting their own authority in their realms. The major conflict at this time was with France and the problem of Gallicanism, but we will see that also in Austria and Josephism and other parts of the um, Christian world. Gallicanism, if you remember, was where the church in Rome was considered to be separate and having its own sphere apart from Rome and under more directly the influence of the French king. Now, this influence of secular rulers was, was felt particularly in Rome during the election of the Pope, where over time, this veto was exercised in papal elections by major Catholic rulers. And so there was always a need to triangulate between various national factions and avoid various national vetoes to elect a pope. And that led to a lot of compromised candidates. We've had a lot of longer conclaves during this time and compromised candidates who were able to be accepted by France and Austria and Spain and all the other people who had a veto in this process. Now, finally, this concluded with the invasion of the Papal States by Napoleon and the French Revolutionary Armies and the capture of Pius VI and Pius VII, which then brings us to an evaluation of the papacy through these 50 episodes. On the positive side, the reform of the papacy has been remarkable. The fact that so many of the later episodes this year have been so boring in the early life of the person who was elected Pope is fantastic. No longer do we have figures like Pius II running around having affairs, secretaries to antipopes, or or we have Renaissance princes appointed to be cardinals at the age of 16, like Leo X, but rather we have fairly boring canon lawyers and papal bureaucrats. And this has been refreshing. These are just humble guys trying to do their part and working their way through the papal bureaucracy and understanding what it takes to govern the church. For the most part, the later popes have been genuinely good men, maybe not exciting, charismatic saints, but relatively pious and working for the good of the church as they saw it. 
We've seen some canonized and beatified popes, though, which is great. And we've seen some who aren't canonized, but probably should be, so that's also good. Now, on the negative side of the ledger is the relationship between the papacy and the rest of the world. The moral leadership of the pope has diminished over the last 50 episodes. And in part, that's a lot of that has to do with the need to maintain the secular territory of the papal states. So long as the pope is one more petty prince in Italy and has lived as such, rather than the vicar of St. Peter, vicar of Christ, the nations have been inclined to treat him as just another petty leader in, in Italy, or rather to ignore him completely. As radical secular philosophies sweep Europe in the latter half of the 18th century, especially with the French Revolution, that indifference turns to outright hostility. And yet that, that hostility I think we see going forward was actually kind of good for the papacy. So much of the corruption we saw in earlier uh, in the earlier episodes of these 50, last 50 episodes was due to the fact that the papacy had with it secular political implications. And so local families wanted to control the institution to enrich themselves and build up their own power bases in Italy. But as that political power vanishes, and soon it will vanish completely, the papacy reverts back to what it was intended for from the beginning, the rock of Peter upon which the universal church is built. Which brings us to the looking forward section of this episode. And as I write this episode and as I record it, it's the week of Thanksgiving 2023. The idea for this podcast came in November of 2017, and I edited together the intro music and in between courses at Thanksgiving dinner in 2017. And the first episode's actually published in June of 2018. In that time, we've covered 1,800 years of papal history and 250 of the 264 popes. And by the way, in my text here, I put an asterisk next to that number. Go back to episode 145, Pope Benedict IX, to remember why. Anyway, we're almost done. We have 14 episodes left after this one, which brings us to the present day. I probably won't record an, a full episode for Pope Francis, or maybe I'll just do one up to his election as Pope, because you really can't write history while it's still going on. You need time to reflect. And it's not helpful to have an episode for someone who's still alive, still governing, and still going through their papacy. So we don't have too much more left with this project. And that frankly amazes me. Most of what we know about the papacy, the popes we consider the big names in the papacy for us, Pope Pius XII during World War II, St. John XXIII and the Second Vatican Council, St. Paul VI, St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. They're all the last 14 episodes in the last three or four months of a six-year project. If you ask someone to name all as many popes as they can, they can usually name the last 50 years, maybe. Maybe the last 100 years. But that's such a small portion of the history of the papacy. Our church is so old and yet it seems so young. We've gone through so much and the Holy Spirit has sustained us through all of it. And, and on that note, one of the remarkable things going forward is in these next 14 episodes, we have five popes, either blessed or canonized saints, and a couple more on their way. In the last 50 episodes, we only had two. So what good news, the proportion of those who are canonized saints in the next 14 episodes is so much greater. Real holiness in our popes like never before. It's awesome. We will see how the papacy begins to interact with a secularizing Europe, how the pope becomes a moral figure that leads the world, and how the church and two ecumenical councils responds to the challenges faced by the changes brought by modernity. Plus, there are some other really great and incredible stories along the way. Now, one last note before signing off this episode, I'm in the process of finishing up a book based on some of my favorite stories from the Habemus Papam episodes. I hope to have more details coming before the series wraps up completely. But if you like these episodes, if you like some of the random cool stories, keep your eye out for it. I basically do deeper dives into some of the best and the craziest stories that I learned from this project. 
And then I kind of have a spiritual reflection and things we can learn from each of them. Like I said, more information will follow, hopefully. Next week, we will pick up with the brief papacy of Pope Pius VIII. So I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.